passage. Luke had uh, a sermon series earlier this year that was, he went through the Confession of Faith, which is the, the book that I, I'm not sure if there's some back there right now, but the Confession of Faith from a Mennonite Perspective. And there were some, <clears throat> excuse me, there were some uh, issues that he wasn't able to get to because of time, and so I thought I would maybe uh, attempt to address some of those issues uh, that he wasn't able to get to. And this morning, that issue is uh, Article 23, uh, Confession of Faith, which is peace and non-resistance. Um, I'm asking you to consider this, the scriptural support and consistency for this doctrine, and I'm asking you to examine and see the inconsistencies, inconsistencies and contradictions just war theology and self-defense has with Jesus' teachings, his life, and what his apostles lived and taught. Now, I won't be able to cover everything this morning. I would welcome any questions and challenges. If I didn't articulate something quite right or, or that you would have a question on, I, I welcome those conversations. Uh, I want to acknowledge that this topic can stir up some strong feelings of disagreement between us. Uh, many times we avoid, <clears throat> we avoid topics like this out of fear of offending and causing disunity. I have, ha I have enjoyed many conversations on the subject, and some were not so enjoyable. My intention is not to offend, and it is not to be dogmatic, but to honor Christ and challenge us to examine his teachings and words. So I'd ask you to, re to refrain from throwing any fruits and vegetables till I am outside. <laughs> I was raised in a Mennonite with, by Mennonite parents. I have attended Mennonite churches all my life. I was taught this doctrine of peace and non-resistance, however, I attended public school and was taught about civil government and the founding of this country. I was taught the Pledge of Allegiance. I have watched TV shows and movies that show military heroes that kill the enemy or the villain, eliminating the threat uh, and saving life. Even the cartoons I watched, like Popeye and Tom and Jerry, had some form of revenge or violence in them. All evangelical preachers I, have, I listen to and respect, like John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, R.C. Sproul, um, and even uh, right now media is filled with wonderful evangelical teaching and material. But they overwhelmingly embrace just war and a justification for a lethal form of self-defense. I have been influenced by these voices in my life, and they cause me to question this doctrine of peace and non-resistance resistance and investigate the biblical strength and biblical foundations that has been built on. Was this doctrine sound? So what you're going to hear this morning is kind of my journey to look at this. Is this doctrine of peace and non-resistance something that holds consistency? It is overwhelmingly a minority position in our, not only our secular society but also in the Christian church as a whole. It is dismissed as some misinformed faction of the Protestant church. So this morning, I recognize I'm just one small voice to be heard over a large crowd. But don't take my word for it. Examine it. See for yourself if what I'm saying is consistent with Scripture. I won't be able to, like I said before, I won't be able to cover everything. There's probably 30 sermons within the content that I'm, I'm doing this morning. Um, and there is limited time before lunch. Um, but if I have not addressed something you feel is important on this topic, feel free to challenge me or ask questions of clarification. I may not have had enough time to address it in this morning's service. 
The question we need to ask ourselves over and over again as we test our beliefs is, does this argument come from the wisdom of this world or from Jesus? Does this position originate from my own presuppositions and desire to justify my actions, or does it come from Scripture? Have I correctly interpreted Scripture or or used it to justify this position? Does this position contradict Jesus' words and commands, or is it consistent with the words and commands of Jesus? The Confession of Faith in a Mennonite Perspective addresses it in this way in Article 22 under the title of Peace, Justice, and Nonviolence. I picked out, I'm not going to read all of it for you, that, that we're limited in time, and so I picked out a paragraph that probably best sums up the, this Confession of Faith. <clears throat> As followers of Jesus, we participate in his ministry of peace and justice. He has called us to find our blessing in making peace and seeking justice. We do so in the spirit of gentleness, willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. As disciples of Christ, we do not prepare for war or participate in war or military service. The same spirit that empowered Jesus also empowers us to love enemies, to forgive rather than to seek revenge, to practice right relationships, to rely on the community of faith to settle disputes and resist evil without violence. For me, there are four principles that I think Uh, They are not vital to this, but they help uh, help me whenever I hear teachings of peace and non-resistance to better answer some of those questions. The first principle is Jesus is our Lord and our allegiance is in him alone. Can I be a follower of Jesus and not obey his commands? Second principle is as followers of Christ, we are citizens of his kingdom. Jesus taught us about the kingdom of heaven and that it was at hand. He is king of this kingdom. We are his ambassadors of this kingdom and are aliens to the kingdoms of this world. This kingdom is real and we, ha- and we are obedient and follow the laws of this kingdom. A third principle is there is a resurrection for everyone. This resurrection will result in judgment and eternal separation from God described as hell or eternal life with God, described as heaven. No one is escaping judgment. We are living this life in the context of hope and certainty of eternal life. For this reason, death holds no fear for us. And the fourth principle is God is sovereign. We heard some of these this morning, as his promises. He is in control of absolutely all things in any and every moment in order that his purposes and plans for good and his glory come to pass. Do we trust him? For me, these four principles help bring some clarity to this topic. So I'd like to begin by looking at the Old Testament. Uh, If you want to try to follow along, I'm not very proficient with Proclaim yet, maybe next next Sunday, um, to follow along with some of these scriptures. But we're going to look in the Old Testament first, in Genesis 9, 4-6. When we try to justify self-defense, just war and many other typically go to the scriptures of the Old Testament to to support that. God directs violence and the killing of entire nations by his people. It is definitely not where you would think you would go to look for evidence of peace and non-resistance and to love our enemies. However, we do see evidence that violence was not what God intended for his creation. 
So, in Genesis 9, 4-6, God is speaking to Noah and giving him instructions after leaving the ark. And he says, You must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it, and for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every, um, from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in, the, for in the image of God, God made mankind. Shedding of blood is a euphemism for killing. Uh, now, most just war advocates would, would categorize this kind of bloodshed to only include murder, not shedding of blood in war or self-defense. However, I bring this passage up to show God takes the shedding of blood to be very serious. Note that God does not distinguish in any significance at this point on how blood is shed. There is no differentiating killing from murder here. It simply describes killing as shedding of blood and that it will demand an accounting. All people are made in the image of God, even our enemies. There is no distinction that makes an exemption for this accounting. The reason God judges those who kill another human being is because we are all made in his image. How can killing be justified if this is the case? Even Christians who promote just war admit that, that war is evil and not something God intended for his creation. Now we could go to the Ten Commandments, which is found in Exodus 20, where it says one of the commands are, you shall not murder. Now I know it is argued that murder is not the same as killing on the battlefield or in self-defense. However, just as Jesus called us to a higher standard of the law with other commandments, I believe that it is God's intent for us not to kill each other, period. That's what God intended from creation. For example, there are serious mental issues that people develop from the trauma of being responsible for the death of another human being, no matter what the circumstances, whether they are justified or not. We have come up with all kinds of derogatory names in order to dehumanize the enemy, in order to make killing another human being less traumatizing. We have called our enemies chinks, chicoms, ragheads, redskins. Germans were called boxheads and krauts. And the latest term for the enemy on the battlefield is soft targets. Human beings have been reduced to just soft targets. I find that that is almost offensive that we have reduced image bearers of God to soft targets. God did not create or design us to kill each other. Man has corrupted that. That is what the promise of heaven is. Peace, no more war, no death. Even those that hold on to just war theology would have to admit this to be true. We have come up with many rationalizations to justify taking human life. So I do believe that God's intent can be seen in the law and the Old Testament and consistent with Jesus' teachings and commands under the kingdom of heaven. If we look at Isaiah, he also has some things to say about this. Isaiah 2, verse 4, He shall be judged between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Farther along in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 5 through 7, Isaiah says this, 
for every boot and a trampling warrior in battle to molt and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fire, fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now this is a prophecy about Jesus and about his government and about his kingdom. When Jesus came, he said his kingdom was at hand. He is reigning now. His kingdom is now, therefore these prophecies have come to pass under his lordship. Again, I think these passages reveal that God's intent for those who belong to the kingdom of heaven. So even though God allowed and instructed the use of the sword in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant, there was a specific and direct written prophecy that this use of the sword was not going to be part of the new covenant and this new kingdom under the lordship of the Messiah. Of the Messiah. Whether you believe that we are in the last days or not, you cannot deny that this is ultimately what God desires for his people. This is part of the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of God is what the message of the gospel is all about and should be. The goal of every Christian should be to live out the commands Jesus gives about this kingdom. Well, what about David? What about David, a man after God's own heart? He killed thousands of people in battle and what seemed to be with God's blessing. King David is commonly used as an example of, of a godly warrior. He is the man after God's own heart, after all. Surely he must be our example of balancing war and right relationship with God. So let's look at David. Is this true? I'd like to call uh, attention to one aspect of David that is not brought out a whole lot. Um, David, at one time, and this is recorded in 2 Samuel 2, 7, Daniel, uh, David had a, a wonderful idea. He noticed that his house in the palace was wonderful. And as he looked across the landscape from his palace, he noticed that God was still living in a fancy tent. And so he thought it would be a great idea to, to build something for God that was more appropriate um, than a tent. And so his idea was to build a temple. How disappointing to come up with a fantastic idea that pleased God and then God prevented him from doing it. God said, you will not build my temple. Your son will do that. We don't find out until David has a conversation with Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22 why it is that God would not allow David to build a temple. And David says to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you, and you shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest for all his surrounding enemies, for his name will be, shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. 
Now, I think it's very significant that the reason God doesn't allow David to build his temple is because he had shed so much blood. God wanted his temple to be built by a king known for peace, not bloodshed. It's still a little confusing why, if, if David killed so many in the name of God with his blessing and was even said to be a man after God's own heart, did God have a problem with David building the temple? It's th- admittedly, it's hard to reconcile these things as we read the stories in the Old Testament of war and God's hand in them. I mean, for goodness sake, God directed David to carry out war and bloodshed. How hypocritical to now punish and restrict David from building the temple because of his acts that he directed him to do. However, I believe we can see these scriptures. God's intention for his people was not for war. The temple, which was going to be in the place of God, the place that God would reside, a physical representation here on earth of the spiritual throne room in heaven, was not to be built by someone who was known as a warrior and directly known for his military conquests with massive enemy bloodshed. Now this is something that came to me as I was studying this. And this is something you can test to see if there's any truth in this. Under this new covenant that Jesus has established, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. We are God's temple. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now I have to ask myself, if we are God's temple, then how can we cause bloodshed? If David cannot even build God's temple because he was responsible for so much bloodshed, how can we be a representative of God and a temple of which he dwells and be responsible for any kind of bloodshed. Are you following me on this? Does this make sense? I'll, I'll say this again. If David was not allowed to even build God's temple because he was responsible for so much bloodshed, how can we be a representative of God and a temple of which his spirit dwells and be responsible for any kind of bloodshed? Pacifism, I believe, is not missing from the Old Testament. Pacifism was God's original plan for his creation. And we can also read in the Old Testament that it was not God's plan for his children in the future either. So what does Jesus have to say about this? And let me preface this by saying when I interpret scripture, Jesus' words and commands are weighed as priority when there are apparent contradictions. When God becomes man and and speaks directly with his creation as a second person of the Godhead, I'm going to tend to view all of Scripture through the lens of what Jesus says. This is called a Christocentric view of Scripture. There are many Scriptures we could go to. However, the most obvious would be the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And we'll look at Matthew 5. First of all, we'll look at uh, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. The world definitely has a different understanding of peace. So when I use the word peacemaker, it means different things to different people. The world sometimes refers to military force as peacekeepers. Again, the world defines peace as the absence of war, so peacekeepers are overwhelming forces. 
that, uh, which no one wants to pick a fight with, live peace peaceably or die, the peace that God has to offer is very different. The kingdom of heaven defines peace as a peace with God in harmony with our neighbors. It's not just the absence of conflict, but actually loving everyone, even those who hate us. It is a positive action of love, not just an absence of violence. If we go on in chapter 5, we see in, in uh, verse 38 through 41, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, as I read this, most people try to exclude verse 38 from this passage in order to change the context. Focusing on just the slapping and turning the other cheek part of the passage. The popular interpretation of this passage is only about the backhanded slap to the faith, face that has more to do with disrespectful act or an insult than it does with self-defense or a violent aggressor. However, what is usually ignored is the example Jesus uses in the preceding verse, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. This cannot in any way be described as a dis disrespectful, uh, disrespectful act or insult. The context of this verse seems to be more accurately described to also include a violent act that causes an eye to be gouged out or hit so hard that a tooth is dislodged. Jesus is referring to the law in Exodus 21. Exodus 21, 22 to 24 reads like this. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth premature but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wood, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Similar texts are also found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. This passage refers to the law that addresses those that are fighting, and the fighting results in a serious injury. This is the context that Jesus is speaking to, not just an insulting flat slap to the face in the, event of a serious, in the event of a serious injury, God commanded that the punishment be no more than the wrongdoing that was perpetrated on the victim, thereby limiting excessive punishment and escalating uh, acts of violence and revenge. Justice was served, but it was a limited justice. However, Jesus is proposing a radical new way to respond to a perpetrator of violence or an oppressor, as well as, as those who insult us. He is proposing a different kind of justice. Justice is reserved for God to administer, not to us. Jesus is making a direct connection with these scriptures when he said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. The Jews he was speaking to would have known exactly the text he was referring to, which was violent behavior crimes with violent forms of justice. When Jesus says, do not resist an evil person, he uses the word anthistami. That's a Greek word that means uh, forcefully, means oppose forcefully with personal conviction. 
it was a military term to resist. We are not to resist violently, blow for blow. Jesus is teaching us how to respond to those who insult us, but also to those who commit violent acts against us. We do not retaliate. Uh, later on here in Matthew 5, we have another text, 21 to 22, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Again, Jesus is calling us to a higher accountability to this new covenant written on our hearts and mind. And I understand that most find, do not define killing and murder as the same thing. In fact, most make it a point to point out the difference between the two. Murder is different from killing. However, I don't believe Scripture doesn't necessarily point out that distinction. Strong says this about the word murder, rasak. It is the murder or slay with intent, with premeditation. I would argue that war and self-defense, there is definitely intent and premeditation. If you have a weapon for self-defense, then you have intent and premeditation to kill in self-defense. When a soldier goes to battle, there is intent and premeditation to do harm to the enemy. A friend of mine was struggling with this issue and was considering buying a handgun for self-defense. My challenge to him was, the moment you purchase a handgun for self-defense, your intent is to take the life of another human being. If that is the reason for purchasing the weapon, if that is why you're carrying a weapon, you have intent. When you practice in order to be proficient, you're practicing with intent. I hope that makes sense. Although you may not know the person's name or have that person in visual, uh, a visual image of yourself, there is an intent to kill that person that would threaten you. My point is that the implementation of this kingdom of heaven, there is a change of our understanding of God's intent of the law and how we ought to live. Our thoughts and our motives reveal sin in our lives and what is going on in our hearts and for what we will be judged. And for that, we will be judged. For those who try to differentiate murder from killing, I'm just not sure there's a strong enough argument to suggest Jesus is making that distinction. It is very difficult for me to understand how Christians can look at this passage and still believe Jesus isn't calling us to not kill under any circumstance. That this is God's intention for his children. If being angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment, certainly killing them is also. In the last text in Matthew that Jesus talks about this is Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. 
Be perfect, therefore your heavenly Father is perfect. Loving your neighbor is found in the Old Testament. However, hating your enemy is not found in Scripture as a command by any means, but it is referred to as an acceptable to hate. For example, in Ecclesiastes 3, um, Solomon says, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Again, I believe Jesus here is closing loopholes and giving us a new command, not only as it pertains to our behavior, but our hearts. The Greek word for enemy that is used here is ekthros, and it means hated, hostile, an enemy. It describes a person resolved to inflict harm, someone openly hostile. Jesus has used the word enemy. Rome and its military would have been included as those who were the enemy. There, there may have been others also, but the ter- term enemy was not defined or specifically limited to refer only to personal relationships. There are no exceptions mentioned, no clarification given to the word enemy. Limiting the definition of what the word enemy means here to only include personal relationships when the text does not do so is to interject one's own opinion, presuppositions, and traditions into the text. We are in danger of making this text say what we want it to say. Jesus and the apostles have gave exceptions when it came to the subject of remarriage and divorce, but not on this subject. So I think it's reasonable to assume that if there was an exception about who our enemy is, or rightfully taking life of another human being, that would have been mentioned. And we shouldn't exhort nor verse 45. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Essentially what Jesus is saying about our enemies is that God loves our enemies as much as he loves us. He's providing care for their survival for them as much as he is for you. He made our enemies just as he made us. He values their lives just as he values ours. Who are we to decide their lives are no longer valuable or that we can justify who lives and who dies? As we learned in Genesis, we are all image bearers of God. Who are we to deny them the future possibility of redemption and saving faith of Christ? Jesus goes on to challenge us in verse 47 to ask, how is our response to our enemies any different than how the world responds? How are we responding differently than the world if we justify killing our enemies? Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor in Luke 10, which he answers by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are told to love our neighbor like the Samaritan loved the Jewish person in the parable. These two nationalities hated each other. They did not work with each other. They were not next door neighbors. So Jesus commands us to love our neighbor, which includes those that we hate. With this in mind, how do you think Jesus would have responded if we were to ask him who our enemies were, the ones we are commanded to love? If he follows the pattern, our enemy will include even those beyond who we would consider worthy of his love. Jesus' message is clear and easy to understand. It's difficult to accept, but it's easy to understand. From the moment Jesus commanded us to love our enemies in his Sermon on the Mount, this command is repeated and supported with other similar texts. I have found that there are no exceptions or contradictory statements found in anything said or written following his command. 
The enemy is never limited in its definition by any clarification or exception. We are to love our enemies in every sense of those words. What does the epistles have to say? Well, Paul says in Romans 12, Do not repay evil, anyone for evil for evil. Be careful. Do not to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And in 1 Peter, Peter says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded and be sympathetic. Love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil for evil, insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to you were called, to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Again, there are no exceptions, no clarifications to who is defined as our enemy anywhere in the New Testament. There is no reason to believe that our enemy is just a personal enemy, that is just giving us a hard time or someone that is disrespecting us. It may include those people, but it does not exclude the broader definition of the term enemy. Our enemy is defined to mean every sense of what we typically see, defined as the word enemy. We wrestle against spiritual powers, not physical ones. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. This passage addresses both the theology of two kingdoms and articulates that we do not wage war in the same way that the world does. We are not to be passive as spiritual warriors. We are absolutely in a battle, a war, but armed only with spiritual weapons. In other words, Paul does not say we wage war like the world in addition to the spiritual world. He specifically says we do not wage war as the world does. It may be what I consider the most direct, straightforward scripture that addresses this issue. As followers of Christ, we should understand that our response to war and violence should be this not using weapons of this war. How could it be said any clearer for us to understand? Paul also says in Ephesians 6, we do, for we, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the powers and against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Again, he is consistent. He doesn't say our struggle is with flesh and blood and spiritual forces. He specifically says our struggle is with spiritual forces and even specifies, again, not against flesh and blood to bring further clarity to what he is saying. Again, how could Paul state this any clearer? Now next week, I'll be addressing some of the arguments against this position, kind of a cross-examination, if you will. The whatabouts, I've, I've named them. What about when Jesus tells the disciples to buy a sword? What about when the soldiers, soldiers who were not and never, or never commanded to leave the army? What about Romans 13? What about Hitler what about the homicidal murderer home invasion? To summarize, this is a very hard thing to defend sometimes, and I'm still working through the complicated aspects of this issue. It defies logic. It doesn't make sense. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly for the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To most, this case I presented here is foolishness. Ultimately, you will have to examine and compare what I've presented here with Scripture and Jesus' own words. He presents a radical way of life under a new covenant as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The question we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond differently than the world when we are confronted with hatred, slander, death, pain and suffering, loss of possessions, disrespect of our enemies? And where, where is our allegiance? Jesus has experienced every one of these things. How did he respond? How did his disciples respond? We are followers of Christ. We are called to imitate God. Jesus was and is God made flesh and lived among us, giving us an example and our only perfect example of how we should live. Our goal is to become like Christ. Until we can give up and surrender everything in this world, we are not followers of Christ. This includes our rights, all of our stuff, our families, and even our own very lives. If you are willing to protect any one of these things with violence and even kill, how are you, have you surrendered any of these things to Christ? Scripture addresses this subject quite clearly. Jesus and his disciples taught and were very consistent and direct. I would take, it would take a lot of biblical evidence to contradict these clear and direct passages. That evidence, I found, is just not there. I found nothing in all of the Old, New Testament from Matthew to Revelation that would suggest or give an exception to loving our enemies. I am, I am convinced that whatever evil situation I am faced with, my most consistent biblical response is to love my enemy as Christ commanded and lived an example. There is only the message of giving up my life as a sacrifice for others, just as Jesus did. And I'd like to conclude to read as a prayer Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.